Golden Dian. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Icelandic Roots podcast. In today's episode, we sat down with the one and only Nelson Gerard. If you're not familiar with his works, he is perhaps one of the most prolific genealogists and historians within the Icelandic North American community. He has written two books, The Icelandic Heritage and The Icelandic River Saga. We hope you all enjoy and stay tuned for part two. All right, well, welcome everyone. Me and Jack are here at Engimiri with Nelson Gerard, one of the current age's founders and leaders with his uh, keeping genealogy and the true history of New Iceland alive and very well. Nelson, thank you very much for uh, joining us today and uh, we're very grateful to have you uh, come and join the podcast and kind of explain what you've done and really dive into that entire scope. Great to have you guys and welcome to Angamiri. Yes, uh, thank you. Maybe, do you want to just give a brief overview of where we are? We kind of just did a little bit of a tour with you, but for those listening, it might be interesting to provide some context where exactly we're recording right now and hearing the coffee machine in the background, maybe it will set the tone as well. <laughs> well, we're sitting in the kitchen of a historic house called Engineer at uh, what is now Riverton, formerly Icelandic River, <clears throat> in the heart of New Iceland. Um, this house is, uh, is a restoration project um, undertaken by Icelandic River Heritage Sites, which is a volunteer charity group we established here about 12 years ago to try and rescue and um, celebrate some of our vanishing history. Mm. Um, I guess what prompted us to uh, to organize our group was a bit of alarm actually at, at how little is left. Yeah. And uh, this house is a, is a classic example of that. <clears throat> it's um, probably the oldest surviving uh, intact residence uh, in this northern part of New Iceland. Mm. It uh, was, the land was originally homesteaded in 1877 by my great-great-grandparents, Thomas Jonasson and Guðrún Jóhannesdóttir. But that's not why I'm involved in restoration. Uh, it just so happens that this house was one of the few that had been left. I shouldn't say intact because um, it was in pretty rough shape when we took it over mm. uh, approximately 12 years ago. Mm. It uh, had been built the surviving portion that we still have was built in about 1905, so it's well over 100 years old. Mm. And uh, it had been abandoned uh, approximately 20 years prior to our um, taking stewardship of it, which we did through a 99-year lease agreement with the owner, who interestingly is actually the fourth Thomas Jonasson. Mm. And that's kind of a, a rare and unique um, phenomenon these days mm -hmm. <clears throat> that an original homestead is still in, in the family and mm -hmm. um, the residence is still intact. Mm -hmm. But as I mentioned, the house was quite derelict when we took it over. The windows had almost in, all, all been broken and knocked out. The yeah. doors had been kicked in. It was a 
family of raccoons living upstairs in the kitchen oh, here. Okay. And there were <laughs> mushrooms growing in that corner because oh. the kitchen had pulled away from the main part of the house. The <laughs> sparrows were flying through. Yeah. There was a foot of trash and garbage on the floor. Hmm. Uh, things were pretty rough. The yeah. house had been leaking. The wallboard was starting to warp and discolor and pull away. And so various naysayers in the, in the community would uh, share their opinion that the house should just be, hmm. um, uh, we should put a match to it rather than putting any effort. Yeah. They couldn't understand why we would possibly be interested in, mm -hmm. in trying to salvage this house. <clears throat> but I think now uh, virtually anybody who drives past would be singing a different song because yeah. um, mm -hmm. this neglected little corner of Riverton on Queen Street is uh, now a little bit of a, a showpiece. We have busloads of tourists coming through, mm -hmm. mostly from Iceland. We had two large loads of the summer, 148 and 144 on the same day. Wow. Um, <laughs> with a group in between, a smaller family group of about uh, six in between. And by and large, the, the people who come are they get it. They get why we've done this and yeah. what the point is. And um, a lot of people are also very supportive of us. Our group has been mostly volunteers. Well, we are all volunteers, but we've done most of our work through volunteer, um, you know, sweat equity. Mm -hmm. But we have enjoyed um, very strong support from certain individuals. Uh, many of them who now live in locations like California or British Columbia or, you know, North Dakota. Mm -hmm. And um, that's always very encouraging. And it, it, it's almost as if, um, you know, build and they will come kind of thing. If, yeah. you, if you take on a cause that you recognize and see as valuable, other people will come to recognize it as valuable in time when you've sort of moved forward with your vision of it. Yeah. So we have actually taken on a second house. This one is nearing completion. And there was a, a bit of an urgent case with, with another old house, which ha actually has a log segment to it dating back to the 1880s. Mm. And it's, it's now <clears throat> situated next door here. We moved it to this location whereas the Engibridi house is actually on its original foundation. Hmm. But um, that house is now undergoing um, major restoration hmm. as of about three days ago. Okay. And we've actually uncovered the log walls from the 1880s. And um, it's, it's pretty exciting to, to see, um, you know, evidence, concrete evidence of the handiwork of the pioneers mm -hmm. from all those years ago. Right. That house has the additional attraction of being haunted. <laughs> tradition claims that's the case. And, and so uh, we have an idea that it might become a folklore center of, of some kind, okay. but at the very least we're going to, we're going to save it. Mm. Um, and we have already done the structural work that's necessary. We, we had to move it here. We actually had to buy the house. Hmm. Well, it was going to be demolished. 
<clears throat> we had to move it. We had to create a new foundation for it. We had to do quite a bit of structural work, re-roof it. Um, we're about $45,000 in mm. uh, to date, not including the restoration work that's about to begin. Mm. Yeah, very cool. A uh, <clears throat> couple things you said there that I want to kind of circle back on. First of all, the build it and they will come idea. And that reminds me a lot of Hofsos and the Immigration Center and a lot of work that Volgair has done there. Uh, so that's maybe a potential if you'd like to talk about your connection to Hofsos and your time working there. Uh, but maybe another thing, and you can maybe tie this in with your answer. So when you said that uh, restoring this building as opposed to many naysayers, people that maybe didn't understand that vision, and uh, you said that today, people that come here, they get it, they get the point. And my kind of question from that would be, you know, what is there to get? What is the point? Like, I understand it as well being in this house, but maybe there's something you could speak on towards that. And I think it does tie into the immigration center as well, because the question is, what is the point of maybe having these restored buildings or these museums and maintaining this sort of history? Okay. You've, you've really got a couple of questions if I can answer like a politician <laughs> one at a time. First of all, your your observation about the parallels with with Volger's efforts at Hofsos are right on the money. It's not that um, we took the page out of the out of Volger's book, although we might well have, but we were already on that track and mm -hmm. sort of on a, on a parallel track. Mm -hmm. And uh, I did spend... Ten summers, I believe it was, at, mm -hmm. at Hofsos as the uh, genealogical consultant, mm -hmm. and got to know Volger very well, and, and we had a lot. We have a lot in common as far as that sort of um, instinct to save, mm -hmm. and also to forge ahead mm -hmm. with a vision, regardless of what others may how supportive others may or may not be. Yeah. And I know that uh, Volger had challenges with that, um, mm -hmm. which we talked about uh, over the time I was there. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, his first leg of the journey was the Pakhus, mm -hmm. which was, uh, I think, an 18th century timber um, building that um, he recognized as valuable. Mm -hmm. But its last... Uh, his last use had been a slaughterhouse, I believe, and uh, I think a lot of local people had, you know, it was just there. It was an old building that people didn't have very good associations with, and um, they didn't maybe recognize the long-term significance of it. Yeah. But Volger did, and he was—he is a carpenter, and he—he's um, a, a doer, and. Um, by hook or by crook, he managed to bring enough people on board uh, through his enthusiasm and through his vision mm -hmm. to make that happen. And then from that to the next step, which was the restoration of the old <coughs> cooperative building. Mm -hmm. And then the exhibit. And then, of course, the beautiful new um, friend garden building. Yes. And the exhibit there. Mm -hmm. And then the uh, Konumsverschen, I've forgotten the exact name of it, but the third building, or the fourth building. Uh, Where the North Dakota yeah. exhibit, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
So that was a, a huge undertaking. Uh, I'm not quite sure how he pulled all that off. I know he did yeah, eventually it's... win government's uh, support, but mm-hmm. the government were not supportive in the beginning, mm-hmm. in the year 2000. Yeah. Uh, you know, he was still out in the cold with, with that. Yeah. <clears throat> and that's actually when um, when he and I and Wincy Johansdottir, who mm-hmm. was his executive assistant at the time, uh, met at my home, Ederbaki. Mm-hmm. They had come over for the opening of the museum, New Iceland Heritage Museum mm-hmm. at Gimli. Mm-hmm. And uh, we met and, and they invited me to come next summer to Hofsos mm-hmm. to work with genealogy. <clears throat> and I was both honored and kind of excited to do that. And yeah. it, was, uh, it was my dream job, mm-hmm. you could say. It was a perfect fit. Mm-hmm. And um, the rest uh, is history, <laughs> including, I guess you could say, the the um, genesis of the Silent Flashes exhibit, mm-hmm. which is one of my proudest accomplishments. Right. And that, in turn, came from... Came, grew out of a collection of photographs that mm-hmm. I had amassed mm-hmm. at Aderbaki, which is my own heritage cultural center. Mm-hmm. Uh, and many of those photographs had been cast-offs mm-hmm. <clears throat> that would have probably ended up in landfill or burning barrels yeah. had it not been for the fact that somebody was interested mm-hmm. and some of the people that were downsizing or getting rid of the mm-hmm. this old junk. Yeah. Uh, could at least dump it off at my place <laughs> instead of the landfill. And that has become a um, an invaluable and irreplaceable archive of mm-hmm. early photography of the Icelanders in North America. And Absolutely. The bulk of the contents for the Silent Flashes exhibit came from that collection. Wow. Yeah, crazy that something so small started and snowballed and was able to turn into something so incredible like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and very much, you know, one thing triggers another thing uh, once you get on this path. Especially when you do connect with other people who share those interests and get it, as as you said before. Which brings us back to the second question you asked about what is there to get? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a good question, especially in this day and age with um, all of the sensitivities that have grown up around... um, identity and um, um, our society has become ultra <clears throat> sensitive. It's become like a minefield. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When I first took an interest in this, it was, it was probably out of a, um, maybe even a personal need I had to um, explore something larger than what I do, mm-hmm. having grown up on a farm and, and being unleashed at the university, University of Manitoba. Mm-hmm. I discovered the Icelandic collection, the Icelandic department. And um, as I was mentioning earlier, the Icelandic newspaper, Lagberg Heimskringle. Mm-hmm. And all of those were stepping stones and, and uh, conduits for me to increase my own knowledge about things I studied because really I, I was coming from square one. Mm-hmm. I had the interest and I had the, um, maybe a need to know more, 
And that relates to your question of, you know, what is there to get? Yeah. I think um, I can say for sure that um, one thing that I have gained personally is a lot of enrichment and um, sense of satisfaction and just a, a much broader perspective on people, society, history, mm -hmm. <clears throat> because family history really leads into, and family history is where, of course, my interest began yeah. through my own mother's uh, background. That leads you into exploring all kinds of related, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. you can't explore family history without asking questions, running into yeah. issues and uh, having to learn what, what this is and how, yeah. why that happened. And just the so, more broader history. Yeah, much broader. Yeah. And so that, that I think for those who pursue it in a serious way, you know, and I'm not talking over a month or two, I'm talking about as a lifelong kind of pursuit. Sure. <clears throat> I think it does give you a broader perspective on life, a greater mm -hmm. appreciation of the human condition and mm -hmm. an understanding of the human condition. And not just, you know, at some point, it's not just now my people, my family history. Yeah. This becomes a, a generalized <clears throat> knowledge or appreciation you have for all people, all cultures, and um, you begin to understand how these things fit together and the importance mm. of things like identity and mm. a place and um, positive role models, which uh, <clears throat> is something that um, we gain in looking back through our own history and even our own families. Yeah, I think those are all incredibly important things um, that we can get and gain. And also, I think contributing to a cause and a community mm -hmm. are things that we don't necessarily benefit, you know, uh, in, a, in a monetary way or in a, right. in a even a, a personal way of any kind, but, mm -hmm. but there is uh, satisfaction and in giving you know, mm -hmm. to the community, preserving something that would have been lost yeah. mm -hmm. and then sort of making it possible for the next generation to either keep that or reject it or pass it along or not. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like Icelanders, as well as new Icelanders, there's often that great sense of pride in kind mm -hmm. of preserving that and being able to go as far back as many people can, as opposed to not necessarily some other cultures, but there's just a very often clear set way back that you can just as you were saying this is might be the macro scale of why something micro might have happened and mm -hmm. it's very neat to learn about all those stories and pride as the word you use is a, is a double-edged sword of course and that's one of the sensitivities we've mm -hmm. developed increasingly it's not a new concept that pride goes before the fall or <laughs> yeah. that pride has another edge to it but mm -hmm. um, but pride is of value in that it um, if you respect your self and your uh, your own identity, your own history, your own people, mm -hmm. it should ideally also cause you to respect and take pride in other people's right. cultures and identities and to, to 
both be willing to share and to participate and partake in other people's cultures. And that's part of the growth, I think, that takes place through a true exploration of family history and, mm. and history. Um, it's something that has to be handled carefully, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, pride is an entry point, but it, that in itself uh, can lead to many good things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's important to make sure that uh, the things that lead to are good things. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very true. Yeah, it strikes me in many ways when you're talking about all of this, learning about the past, having pride in your ancestry, all of these different things. And like you said, uh, having a connection from the small things to the big things. And I think uh, in many ways, when you understand to learn my own family history, you also have to be familiar with the broader history of that time period. I think uh, it also can help you in this moment to place yourself within history, which I think a lot of us struggle. You just kind of live life and you kind of forget that you're living actively creating history as you go. And I think it's worth then pausing and considering, you know, what role am I playing big or small in history as life goes forward? So I think it there is a lot of value that's maybe overlooked by perhaps younger generations uh, of realizing how important being able to place yourself in the broader context is. And I think that is a lesson that you can learn from uh, studying history. And just before we move on from the, if you build it, they will come. We are recording for all you folks listening on October 21st. We just so happened to come over to Erebake from uh, Sigtrigger Jonasson statue here in Riverton, where Nelson was able to tell us exactly kind of where they first saw coming down the Icelandic river and figured that this was the spot to be. And he was really the the pioneer of that. If you build it, they will come through mm-hmm. all of the years of struggle that they might have faced in those, especially first kind of five to 10 years of really starting New Iceland and a lot of that struggle. Mm-hmm. But prevailing through was really the biggest, biggest backdrop and lesson I think I took away from that. Yeah. Whether it had been through smallpox or people moving across into America and to other settlements and prevailing through managed to keep the community alive and as a lot to credit what we have here today. Sorry, it's so cold in here. We, uh... yeah, that's quite all right. It maybe makes it a bit more authentic living in a historic house. I mean, that's also something learning about history is it makes you realize how good you have it today. Yeah. So a little uh, chilly in the house here probably just makes it a more <laughs> authentic experience. I'm wondering if you maybe want to talk at all about the books that you've written. Uh, the Icelandic Heritage and the Icelandic River Saga. I'm curious, personally, maybe a bit into your writing process. Like those historical books are so dense. And I don't mean that in a like dense, boring way, but just dense, like, wow, there's so much information. Me personally, it's so overwhelming to imagine writing something like that. I myself, in thinking about writing, can relate more to something like Bill Holmes' writings, which has a lot of bits of history, but the way he connects it with a bit more personal anecdotes, like, yeah, that's something I think I could manage. Your style of writing in those history books, there's so much that goes into it that it's just kind of overwhelming to imagine how a person goes about doing that. So I don't know if there's anything you can speak to about uh, about actually getting those books. <clears throat> well, I appreciate that question. And again, talking like a politician. <laughs> 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 um, 
And I, I appreciate the fact that you've actually seen the books and, and even dipped into them. Mm. Uh, it is a fair question because, uh, and you're not the first to point out how dense they mm. are in, in that uh, there is actually an, uh, an incredible range of information in there and it is mm. packed in pretty tight. Yeah. Um, I can go back to... Um, 1975, uh, when I was at the University of Iceland and got a, a dream summer job, which mm. entailed coming back to Canada for the summer. I hadn't been back um, the previous summer. My job was to interview old timers in the New Iceland area and record as many place names and information about those place names as, as I could uh, salvage basically. Mm. This is 1975, 100 years after the founding of New Iceland. So already, you know, three generations had come and gone pretty much. I was catching the tail end of the third generation. Okay. And uh, <clears throat> that research from that summer, which I um, um, condensed into a report for the Place Name Institute of Iceland, mm. the Eastlands, working with Thor Hutler Vilmundersen, um, that became really the genesis or the uh, the first uh, sparks of of the book, mm. the Icelandic River Saga book. I uh, spent three winters in Iceland, 1976, and at that point was faced with a choice or a decision. Do I remain in Iceland? Do I try and, you know, graft myself onto, into the Icelandic society? Um, or do I come back to Manitoba? Do I come back home? And you see, by, by the time I had been in Iceland for three years, I, I was able to recognize that um, that was in fact there was in fact a difference mm -hmm, and right. I was in fact a Canadian mm. and that didn't detract from my enthusiasm or my interest or my thirst to know more about my Icelandic heritage or the language. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but, the, but there was a definite distinct um, difference in societies and of course Iceland had changed a great deal since the time of emigration and, mm -hmm. and so had the generations here. Yeah. But I, I made the decision to come home to Canada and um, got a, a job briefly with Larberg Hemskringla yeah. as assistant editor. Mm -hmm. My hope was to become editor because I had the language skills now and I had a keen interest. I also had a, a burning loyalty to a cause, if you want to call it that, yeah. to keep Lord Burkheimskringla alive and to bring it into the next, its next um, iteration or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And there were struggles at that time. There, there were meetings being held among all the movers and shakers in the Icelandic community. What do we do to save Lord Burkheimskringla? Mm. And I attended some of those meetings. And um, Dr. Ph.D. Thorlaxon was the chairman and hosted these meetings at the Winnipeg Clinic, which was his kind of fortress in downtown Winnipeg, mm. which he had founded. 
<clears throat> and um, to make a long story short, I, I um, was advised by Dr. Thorlefson not to pursue the editorship because mm. I needed a real job and $500 a month wasn't going to wasn't going to when I started living in the real world. Uh-huh. I, took, I took his advice and I went back to university and, and studied education and became a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, during my time at Logbrook Heimstringla, this was another learning process. Mm-hmm. And I, I learned more about the challenges of marketing something like Logbrook to the public as it was then, our, our Icelandic Canadian, Icelandic North American readership. Yeah. I also met an elderly woman named Ingebird Sergerson McKillop, mm. who was coming into the print shop where Lordberg was printed at the time by Garther Garderson. <clears throat> Ingebird was having a cookbook printed. Mm. Okay. Uh, new Einstein recipes or Hakla recipes, I right. think it was. Yeah. Uh, and she and I, on a few occasions, sat down and had a visit. And I was I was impressed by her entrepreneurial efforts to you know print her own book. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and um, she was dealing directly with the printer, the guy who was doing the typesetting and the old style. And in one of our conversations, uh, I guess I asked her what her next project was going to be. And she said, well, my next project is going to be a history of of the pioneers of Hackle Island. Hmm. And that kind of um, made me sit up because I had actually entertained an idea of doing a history of Hackle Island because it was such a defined um, geographical area. Mm -hmm. And I, and I have, had been fascinated by the, you know, my taste of the history I discovered while doing research in place names. So in that conversation, I both reacted to her informing me that she was going to do Hecla Island, Mekle, hmm. and I also instinctively made the decision, okay, well, I'm then going to do the Icelandic River area. <laughs> So through her example of being, you know, somebody who was going to do her own book, write her own book, publish mm-hmm. her own book, I saw, you know, I realized that it, that was actually possible. Yeah. And of course, uh, in, in our Icelandic society, we see a lot of that. Mm-hmm. A lot of people who uh, both write books and self-publish books, yeah. precipitating that mm-hmm. conscious decision on my part. And shortly thereafter, I began staying after work and going through old copies of Larkberg and Heimstringla mm-hmm. uh, and, and recording, um, you know, the information about different pioneer families. Right. That's how it began. And then while I was still teaching, when I did get a teaching job in Arbor, for eight years, <clears throat> I continued this process. At that time, of course, no computers, yeah. no internet. Long-distance phone charges were still kind of a barrier, so a lot of the research is being done by letters, mm. writing letters, and uh, phone, some phone calls, but also the gathering of photographs and um, physically visiting the uh, 
bunch of archives mm-hmm. and the land titles to go through homestead records. Mm-hmm. Interviewing the few old timers who were still left, yeah. which as it turned out was a privilege mm-hmm. because now I have memories of actually interacting and speaking yeah. with those people who are long gone, mm-hmm. including my own Amma, who was, she died in 1984, a year before the book was published. Wow. One of my, my big regrets was that she didn't live to see it. Mm-hmm. And um, But anyways, eight years of intensive research, but also same time I was teaching. Mm-hmm. And um, it's almost a blur as to how that how, how that all happened. Wow. But at the end of eight years, it had push had come to shove because uh, I had an obligation to fulfill. Mm-hmm. I could have taken it further into, you know, beyond 1930 River, but that would have meant more time, more years. And so I had to cut it off at some point. And um, it was basically complete as it was. Mm-hmm. And so I dealt directly with um, intercollegiate press mm. to do the uh, everything I've written on typewriter wow. edited by hand and then retyped the typewritten manuscript was submitted to intercollegiate press and they had to do the typesetting wow wow <laughs> and so all the layout work was done just like a yearbook uh, uh-huh. very exciting but uh, the most exciting, of course, was the day when I was able to go in and, and see the first copy. Yeah, absolutely. And view the mounds, the mountain of, of books, 3,000 books. I think wow. they weigh eight pounds each. Yeah. So um, that was pretty dense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, uh, do we want another splash of coffee? As a quick interlude. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Our ad break is uh, sponsored by Icelandic River Roast Coffee. <laughs> You're most welcome. And with that coffee break, this will close out part one. You can listen to part two of the podcast following this. Just check out our other episodes listed under the Icelandic Roots podcast. I hope you all have enjoyed this conversation. It was quite the honor and privilege for Owen and I to sit down and interview Nelson. So I hope you have enjoyed this intimate conversation. Look out for part two to hear more about Nelson's book, writing and publishing process, as well as for those of you who follow Nelson personally, are probably quite interested in hearing about his farming. So in part two, we delve all into that. Stay tuned and enjoy.